Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Conversations with the Mind. I'm your host, as always, Shane Lamaster. Um, we are um, sponsored by my counseling company, MindOps.com. Uh, you can find us at www.mind-ops.com. We're a full-service counseling private practice where we specialize in addictions counseling, uh, psychedelic integration therapies, general psychotherapy, so for any of your mental health needs, as well as sport and performance psychology. That's really our passion. Um, so today on Conversations with the Mind, we're going to be speaking with one of my longtime friends, uh, Neil Pappas, um, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but first, I just want to let everybody um, into our good news story of the day. Okay, So we like to share some good news with the world because it seems like the mass media out there seems to focus mostly on the negative. That's what tends to sell, but we're not about that. So we want to share some good news with the world today and uh, hopefully brighten your day with a little bit of hope and some cheer. So today's news story, um, the title of the story is uh, This 10-Year-Old Boy Just Beat Michael Phelps' Most Enduring Swimming Record. So his name was Clark Kent Apuda. I hope I pronounced that right. But he's only 10 years old, and he's recently made international headlines for beating one of Michael Phelps, arguably one of the greatest swimmers of all time, just beat his 100-meter butterfly time um, that Michael apparently set when he was 10 years old as well. So um, pretty cool. This kid is well on his way to becoming one of the greatest Olympians if he keeps it up, and that happens to be one of his goals in life is to become an Olympian. So um, let's send out some good vibes for this 10-year-old boy um, because as the human species evolves and as individuals out there achieve greater and greater things, things that we thought couldn't be achieved, we all benefit from that. Um, so let's let's all send him some good vibes to continue breaking records and continue showing us what is truly possible um, from the human body and the human spirit. Um, so we want to thank all of our subscribers and everyone who listens and follows. Um, please continue to share and like our podcast. That's how we get the word out. Um, all of these will be posted on social media, and you can find these podcasts on any major podcast um, app for your phone. Um, if you have any comments or questions for myself or any of my guests, you can always leave us questions at our website at mindops.com, or you can, uh, I believe there's a space on the, on the app where you can leave um, comments for the actual podcast. So check that out, and please continue to listen. Um, we greatly appreciate um, just the dialogue and the conversation. So today uh, we're welcoming um, an awesome guest, um, my friend Neil Pappas. Uh, Neil and I met in high school. Um, I don't think we might have met before we played lacrosse together, but we definitely, you know, those are some of our fondest memories. Um, I know I was in uh, ROTC with. I think, I think we went to elementary school together. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that far back. Long history. Yeah. But, um, yeah, my fondest memories of, of myself and Neil are um, doing ROTC activities in high school and um, being a part of uh, Loveland, Colorado's uh, first ever lacrosse team, which is. You know, a lot of people give us a lot of shit for that because right. it's it's a Colorado lacrosse team, right? That's <laughs> usually seen as an Eastern East Coast sport, but we rocked it, and uh, we were a 
collaborating between I think three or four different high schools at the time because we just didn't have enough players. Right. I think I think we won one game, but <laughs> one game the first <laughs> no, year. Nobody's counting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, we had a lot of fun and we got to learn some some basic lacrosse skills from actually you know he was one of the best coaches at the time right. for what he did you know right. he he brought colorado state university to the national championships right. and then um got fired for something and then yep. became our coach yep. um, so we learned from the best uh at least in in that realm but um neil and i have been friends for a long time um, we kind of lost contact after high school because he went off um to serve our country for the army and marines yep. um so i hope he he talks a little bit about that um and, uh, you know, Neil and I reconnected on, um, you know, various projects that we, we work on to try and help vets. Uh, we won't go into the details of that. Um, but, yeah, welcome, Neil. I'm glad you're Thanks, here. Um, so, like I, I like to start out all my podcasts with this question for my guests. Sure. Um, so the podcast name is Conversations with the Mind, and I know what that means to me and sort of what I put out there to the podcast listeners as far as you know, what the, what the podcast means to me and, and why I bring certain guests on. But I'd like to ask all my guests, you know, what does that, that phrase mean to you, um, conversations with the mind? Sure. Uh, for me, it's more or less finding a balance in between the bad things I've seen and had to do and the lasting effects they've had and being able to actively keep those at bay while maintaining a normal life. Mm. So you're saying like, because of the things you've had to do and see, um, you know, these conversations can happen sometimes in picture right. form, right. right? As memories right. or sometimes as verbal, verbal memories, right. um, things people have said to you during right. traumatic events, but these events in your past leave an imprint right. in, in your mind and you find yourself having dialogue with right. the, with that memory, with that, um, phrase, so that you can move through your everyday life and right. not be Con like... Continually grounding myself. Yeah, basically. exactly. So talk a little bit about some of those, um, I guess some of those, uh, you don't have to go into the details of the traumas if you don't want, but I guess some of the the impacts that those uh, memories and those, those things have had on you. Sure. Um, so I did uh, four combat tours, three to Iraq, one to Afghanistan. And as those, those combat tours went on, they progressively got worse from, you know, my first time in Iraq to my one time in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And tell the, tell the listeners what you did. Um, what was your job? So I was communications for the Marine Corps and didn't really see a whole lot of bad things in those two deployments. But my last two, I was a combat medic for the mm -hmm. Army. Mm -hmm. So you see the worst of the worst. Right. You, yeah. have, you have to run towards bad things continually. And it's, it's not, a, not a fun time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't always running towards bad things, but I mean, when you're when you're part of a a line unit or a combat arms unit, it's it sometimes happens. Yeah, for sure. Um, so talk talk a little bit about um, you know what those what those lasting impacts have been from sure. seeing those things you were talking about. Sure. Um, it is. It's. It's hard to explain. I'm trying to trying to think of a good way to describe this, but it's having seen things that you should never have seen. Um, it's constantly being on guard when you're in a place that is bad and coming home and trying to wrap your head around being not being there again. Mm. 
So you talk about, you know, this mindset that you, you're placed, in, well, you're almost forced into this mindset. You're, you're forcibly placed into this environment. Right. It's traumatic all the time. Right. And it's either adapt and right. survive or don't adapt and, you know, hunker down in a corner, you right. know, crying, which I'm sure some people in the military do. Right. Um, you know, but you know, most of our military members are very brave individuals. And right. even though, you know, we all have that fear or hopefully most of us have that natural fear in those environments, we still push ourselves to, to complete the mission, right. right? To complete a higher objective, a higher goal. Um, yeah, I think I, you know, I find that amazing and it, probably one of the most enduring things about just the idea of a military in right. general is the type of people it produces um, or maybe maybe not the type of people it produces well I, I would say f some people it, it shapes them but right. more so you know what the military can draw out of somebody right. as far as like personal resiliencies and strengths to be able to deal with the most horrible shit that most of us don't even encounter right. you talk about being in that environment and then coming home to the US and then you know, you don't have to feel that sense of danger all the time, but your body and your, your mind right. are still on that high alert right. all the time, you know. Um, I, you know, I work with vets and I hear these stories all the time, but I've never, I've never experienced anything to that right. level where, where it impacts me for years afterwards, right. you know. And I can only imagine what you guys go through. Um, you know, I hear your stories, um, but I can't. And I try so hard to put myself there, but I can't. Right. You know, I think the worst that would happen to me is, you know, um, I blew out my ACL the first time right. um, when I started jujitsu, um, and I was training real hard, and I blew it out, and I thought everything was over. And right. It was a s severe trauma, and it took me years and many, many surgeries and a lot of um, personal self-discovery to to be able to even get back on that mat. Right. You know, and. And a lot of people who have these injuries don't ever return. Right. And so I see that as like, yeah, maybe I was born with some mental strength to be able to overcome that, but a lot of people don't come back. Right. And that's the most trauma that I think I could relate to with you guys. Is, but you guys take on emotional and physical trauma sure. and bring it back, and it makes it difficult to re-engage. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and being in Iraq the first two times, I thought it was, it was bad, but... Having two other deployments where worse things happened, it kind of kind of puts it in perspective. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of somebody's threshold, I think, and, oh. and that's where that's where mine kind of landed. So my third deployment, I watched a really close friend get shot in the face, and I couldn't do anything to help him. And as a medic, that's a it's a hard thing to grasp. And then Afghanistan, the uh, the Afghan army that was with us called it a butcher shot because we had so much so much trauma come through there in six months. Hmm. So it's just, it was a lot to try to wrap my head around. And then coming home, we had a lot of a lot of deaths and suicides in my unit. And it just, it added even more trauma to, to that experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Maybe even more, right. more so. Right. So at first you, you were talking about how the first two tours in Iraq were sort of easy in comparison to the other ones. Yes. So you felt like, it sounds like you felt like you built up some resiliency or some tolerance to exposure to that right yeah, over time correct. so then it would seem like it would get easier but then you started seeing even worse shit right, right. so that that piles on top of it um 
and that was some of the work that Neil and I would were doing together when he got back. Uh, that's how we reconnected. Is you know we we both saw an issue, a major issue with these uh, veterans coming home and the suicide rate being um, really really high. Right. You know uh, what do they say? Twenty twenty suicides per day, something like 22. that. Twenty two. Twenty two per day, um, and I think the suicide total is higher than than the death to, total during the war, right? right. Um, so there's a major issue here, right? That should right. never, ever happen, but it is. And, you know, you see it more more closely than I do because you have friends that are following through with these acts. Right. Uh, and so you're impacted much greater. But I, for, as an outsider, as a, as a counselor or as a consultant, I see the trauma that you guys go through. Right. You know, the survivor's guilt, the stuff that you guys... Um, hold on to um, right. even when you're when you're you know when your friends are gone well and, and i've seen it where these these servicemen and women that are committing suicide have never deployed mm-hmm. so it's not even it's not even necessarily a combat thing it's just it's that that sector of people that it's it's happening to yeah so so what do you see as like some of the similarities um in those who so you've come back and you've dealt with your own um, depression and, and suicidal ideation and all these things, which is completely normal for your right. situation, right? Um, I don't want to um, stigmatize at all. Um, I actually want to normalize it sure. for, for those listening sure. because it is it is normal and, and people need to be able to have a space and, and people to talk to about it. Sure. Um, but you have come out and found your own way, your own path uh, through treatment and through through your own struggles and come out, I would say, you know, you've come out stronger on the other side. Um, you still deal with some, some struggles, but for the most part, um, you're a functioning retired veteran who gives back to the community and does great sure. things yeah. right so what's so <laughs> it depends on the day on the right. level of functionality but there's definitely a difference between like um the class of vets that that you would fit in versus the class of vets who come back and just cannot reintegrate what do you think is is one is some of them the things that you see as commonalities between these people who can't reintegrate well so so the the mindset for dealing with this in some people's minds is medicating the heck out of people. Sure. Put so, a Band-Aid on it. Right. Treat the symptoms. And I think at one point I was on one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine medications for PTSD. Just for PTSD. A day. That's incredible. Right. And that's not the... Most of those were, were, you know, two or three times a day. So you're talking anywhere from 30 pills, something like 15 to 30 pills when I'd wake up in the morning. Holy cow. So I started looking at other ways to move forward and lessen those medications. Mm-hmm. And, you know, talk, talk therapy and ketamine therapy were the two, the two most helpful avenues that I took during that time frame. Okay. And I definitely want to, want to touch on those um, here in a minute and, We'll probably spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about those, but I want to get back to this question I had for you is what do you think is, um, so you had, you had this drive when you got home, um, this internal drive to say, I want to get better. I want to get off these meds. You know, I want to go back to normal. And then in a lot of these vets that I see that are, um, more suicidal, they, 
they don't have that inner drive. They're like, um, you know, I need my meds. I have to have my right. meds or I'm never going to get better. Right. This is just what I'm going to have to deal with, right? So they don't have that, that mindset that you brought back of, you know, I want to get better. That's my new mission right. is to get better. Whereas these, these folks... Um, I see commonalities in sort of like, uh, in psychology, we call it learned helplessness, where someone tells you you're helpless and they tell you over and over that you're never going to fix it. And then you start to personalize it and believe it yourself. Right. Um, And then you never go get help. Right. Well, and I've never, growing up, even growing up, I've never, I've never allowed myself to be a victim of anything. Yeah. So I came home with, I think, a different mindset than most of my counterparts because I wasn't going to let somebody say I was a victim dealing with these things. Okay. So not accepting that victim mentality. Right. Yeah. I think that's huge. I think that's huge for everybody, not just vets, too. You know, I see that a lot in everyday life. Too many people just accepting a victim mentality. Like, the world does this to me, and it's, you know, it's not... They don't take any accountability or personal responsibility for where they are. Right. I'm a believer that we create our world the way that we create it, you right. know? If things are going well, it's because we're putting in effort to do so. If right. things are going badly, it's because we're resting on our laurels or we're, <laughs> we're making the wrong decisions, yeah. right? So in a way, we create our own reality, and you've created this new reality for yourself um, by having these dialogues with your brain, with your mind, and saying, you know, those old memories are there, and I can still have those, and that's okay, but I'm not going to let them rule my life anymore. Right, and that's, that's where I came home. I just... It took, it took a couple of years, but it, I finally figured out that instead of trying to get better, working with the person that I, I'd become, mm-hmm. because it was a lasting change. It wasn't necessarily a quick thing that I was going to get better from. It wasn't a cold. Right. And I hear, I, so I hear this phrase a lot from vets um, and from a lot of my clients in general. When, when someone comes to me and they're having a problem, I often hear them say, um, I just want to get back to what I was before, right? Right, and I cringe at that every time I hear right. that because um, I have a permanently embedded growth mindset right. <laughs> that I've developed and trained into my brain. So I challenge that every time I hear it, and and I challenge people to think, you know, let's not get you back to who you used to be because who you used to be led you to right here to where right. you are. You know, let's get you to a place that's even better than who you used to be. Right. You know, and that engages uh, post. Uh, post-traumatic growth, right. um, which is new research going on in psychology showing that um, if someone does go through a traumatic event and come out the other side, that they actually end up stronger um, and more resilient than had they never gone through the trauma, right? right. So this is very hopeful research in, the, in PTSD and, and PTSD recovery. Um, yeah, so I, I challenged that, you know, and you came back and you're not trying to go back to old Neil. Right. You're, you, you accepted that this is who I am. These are my experiences. This is how it changed me. But that doesn't mean that I have to be disabled in some way, right? right. I can move forward and be stronger because of it. Right. And I wanted to, the, the big thing I wanted to learn is how to deal with my problems instead of taking a pill for them to mask the symptoms. Yeah. So talk about your, your experience with um, talk therapy first. Sure. Um, so that was helpful. And that's what I do. Right. I listeners. think it was it was December of 2015 before I finally decided I wanted to go through with that. I mean, that was... So there were barriers to getting in that yeah, office. Yeah. So, I mean, that was, that was 12 years from the first deployment until I finally actually went and saw a counselor. Mm-hmm. And even coming back from deployments, I'd seen counselors coming back because I definitely was not good. <laughs> I was not good at all. And they said, you know, you would you definitely benefit from these medications and seeing a counselor. And I was like, well, I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I came home from my fourth deployment 
and realized how trying to think of a good way to describe this how isolated i'd become in mm. this whole world that I, I needed to to go down that road and it took a good friend of mine about a year or two to actually convince me to go forward and actually start looking into seeing a counselor mm-hmm. so did you see a counselor through the va no no i was pretty blessed i was on tricare prime remote so i was able to see a counselor up here in fort collins that was on my own accord and the counselors they had tried to give me in the past were issued like a helmet or a backpack or something like that. It never really worked out. It didn't, didn't really mesh with them. And I started seeing a lady that looked like Betty White. And the first time she <laughs> cussed, we became bonded at that point. Nice. And I opened up to her, and it was, it was good. And, I mean, every session we did EMDR, it was... So for those of you who don't know what EMDR, you, you want to explain what it is you, so it's this is your profession sure. so it's uh eye movement desensitization and reprocessing so it involves um like this set of glasses that you wear that have uh, a light on either side uh in your periphery and then usually it's coupled with um some audio as well which are just usually binaural beats so alternating beats in the ears as well as alternating flashes of lights and what this is meant to do is to get both hemispheres of the brain communicating um, more in sync. Because right. usually in everyday life, um, we're either functioning out of one or the other more primarily, um, which is another thing that psychedelics help do is help bridge that gap and help help both hemispheres um, communicate more effectively together, right. um, enhancing experience. Um, so that's what EMDR is. is um, we talk about traumatic experiences during this um, light and audio therapy bring up the trauma, bring up the, you know, the pain and everything, mm-hmm. and then allow you to uh, reprocess it in a different way so that, um, you know, by using this stimulation, we're, we're improving uh, neural stimulation and new neural pathways right. so that you can move forward in your life and think about the trauma in different ways. Right. So you found that to be useful. Yeah. First, first month was rough, but once we mm-hmm. got past the, the first month, um, there, was, there was a lot of breakthroughs going down that road so that's amazing yeah and you talk about the goodness of fit too um, we talk about that a lot in psychology too and with any client if anybody out there is seeking therapy you should be interviewing your therapist right like when you go in the door you know it shouldn't just be a one-sided thing uh, the research shows that 40 percent of the outcomes that people get from therapy from talk therapy is based on that relationship that right. you have so if the relationship between the therapist and the client just isn't driving you're not getting along that's 40% of your outcome just wiped out, right? right? So your, your potential is only 60%. So that relationship is primary. And you, you said, you know, as soon as she cussed, we were in, right? Yeah, yeah. Same thing happened to me too. Um, some of my most recent knee surgeries, um, I went down to Denver and, and met this new young surgeon. And I was like, oh my God, I don't know if I should go with this guy but he came in the office and the first time he's like f this and f that and like man your fucking knee is is destroyed but i can i can fix it and we're gonna get you back to fucking you know top notch and he's like throwing all these f-bombs i'm like holy shit yeah this is my guy you know and then um you know to top it off as we're going into surgery uh I'm like, so what's the music going to be uh, in the background, right? Because I'm, I'm all about, you know, my subconscious is going to pick up what's right. going on in the room. And he's like, oh, we, we have some heavy metal planned for today. I'm like, sweet, man. <laughs> some sweet 80s hair metal <laughs> while you're doing my surgery. Right. And it turned out great, you know. Yeah. Um, that's the best surgery I've had so far. So that worked great for you. Now I want to talk a little bit about the ketamine therapy, sure. right? Um, so 
first talk talk about how you heard about ketamine therapy. I mean, as a medic, ketamine is is used pretty widely on the sure. field, um, especially in uh, closed closed head injuries. Yeah. So, for for those of you guys who don't know, ketamine has a has a popularity mostly as a street drug here in the U.S. A rave drug. Um, people know it as a horse tranquilizer or something. Right. Um, those are true, but uh, that's not even close to the whole story. Right. So it started out being a drug developed um, for infants during surgery right. um, because it has, um, out of all the anesthetic drugs, it has the the least ability to depress the respiratory system. Right. So people can breathe perfectly normal. Um, this was a huge issue with other anesthetics where people just stop breathing and they die from that. Right. So they use ketamine. Um, because it numbs the body, it gives you a dissociative experience, pulls your mind out of your body so you are not feeling it. And it also, um, in military context, provides um, some benefit because you can give ketamine to somebody on the field and they can um, walk with minimal assistance off right. the battleground, whereas you give someone a huge shot of morphine and you got to carry them, right? right? So that takes two people out of the battle. Right. Um, so that's a, a benefit for the military. But it was also developed for veterinary uses as well and is still in use for vet veterinary uses. Um, but more recently, we've had a lot of research um, come out about ketamine's beneficial application for depression, right. for PTSD, um, for a lot of traumas, um, right. as well as for some addiction stuff. Um, so first, uh, you know, tell about your experience with ketamine as a medic and maybe how you heard sure. about it as a therapy for what you're going through. So in, in, in Afghanistan, nar narcotics for traumas were kind of hard to come by, but we had a plethora of ketamine. And another issue we ran into is when we were innovating these guys to package them, our guys and gals package them, get them sent off to other areas, they uh, they couldn't they couldn't have opiates if they had a closed head injury. And I think most of our patients that came through were exposed to you know some sort of an IED, you know, fell out of the back of a truck chasing a donkey. Right, concussions. Yeah. Brain so, swelling. Yeah, brain and, swelling. And why can't they have opiates for that? That one I don't remember off the top of my head. It's uh, it's to do with the respiratory drive and something else, I believe. Okay, and it's interesting you said that you guys didn't have many pain um, killers there because from what I hear on this side and, and kind of looking into some conspiracies and stuff, sure. you know, I've heard that one of the main reasons why we're even over in Afghanistan is for protecting the poppy fields. Sure, and I've we, seen pictures of that, and that's like 95% of the world's opiate production. Right, and outside of our gate, yeah. <laughs> so, so why don't you guys have these opiates inside right, right, the gate? Yeah, outside like, of our gates, we had a plethora of, of opium going on around us. It's horrible. Inside of the gates, when, when we would go to get our meds, so we were a small team. So there was 12 of us in Afghanistan augmenting 88 of the Slovenes military to go on leave and come back and do their thing. So when we were there, we didn't really have a lot of time to get these meds and do all these things. And, I mean, we were out in the middle of nowhere. Like, it would be, I'm trying to think, it was probably a two-acre two complex in the middle of, of Afghanistan on the western side. Mm -hmm. And didn't have a lot, lot going on versus the east. But there was still a decent amount of trauma that was coming through from tribal disputes and IEDs and everything else. And we would have X amount of narcotics for these physicians that would come in and work with us from Slovenes and then the New York guard. And it was a constant battle to get either morphine or fentanyl. And we usually couldn't get any fentanyl. So it was always morphine and ketamine that we, we mm -hmm. had on stock at all times. You guys should borrow some fentanyl from the 
from the continental U.S. Right. So we have an right. epidemic yeah. here. Yeah. So yeah. we need to ship that yeah, that's, over. Yeah, that's where it's been. So, so um, tell about um, you know some of the benefits that you noticed on the battlefield uh, with ketamine. So the best part about the ketamine on the battlefield was I didn't have to worry about knocking out somebody's respiratory drive because it would have taken an astronomical amount of ketamine to knock out somebody's respiratory drive versus the morphine. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have to have, you know, Narcan on hand, didn't have to worry about a pulse ox, didn't have to worry about a lot of these things. The pulse ox was still in this necessity in that, that arena, but once we got them out of the aid station, I could usually pop it off and hand them off to the flight medics, and then that, that happened at that point. So Okay. So definitely some, some benefits to working with ketamine. Right. It was just... It took less of my team to monitor mm-hmm. the patient when we use ketamine mm-hmm. versus morphine. So I have a question for you, and I don't know if this has been studied in the research. It, it would probably be an interesting study for the Army to do. But um, I would like to know if there was a difference in um, the recovery from trauma, uh, not sure. physical trauma, but uh, emotional and, and psychological trauma, if there sure. was a better improvement from those who you use ketamine on right. immediately after injury um, because of the ketamine influence right. versus those who receive an opiate for um, a, a similar related injury. And I'm wondering if the um, if the post-traumatic growth that, ha- that happened or that was sure. possible was different between the two. I've, I've only seen one buddy go through it, and he's definitely, he definitely deals with his trauma differently than I did, and, I was, and he was the one that got shot. So I, I would definitely agree with that. But the... The patients we used it on in Afghanistan, they seemed more at ease. Okay. And that was both American and Afghan when they were on the medications versus not. Right. And that makes a lot of sense because uh, in my own ketamine experiences, you know, once you get past the whole ego death part of it, right. you know, you find a lot of comfort and a lot of... Um, yeah, you know, comfort is the best word. You find a lot of comfort in knowing that, you know, you are part of this larger collective universe right. and, and you get an exposure to that and so the the thought of death um is not as scary right you know yeah so now talk you know t- t- tell the audience how you found out that ketamine was uh, a good therapy or might be a good therapy sure. for you and what you're dealing with so about a year and a half ago my depression was kind of at its worst and i was looking for anything that i could do to lessen that that feeling every day and one of the things i'd looked into and done some research on was ketamine therapy at Clarisana and I believe it's Houston, Texas. I might be, might be wrong in that, but they were kind of the forefront of taking veterans and putting them through ketamine therapy. So the VA had worked with them in the past and the anesthesiologist that ran it was a uh, retired army anesthesiologist. So he was working with patients to go through and actually do this. And I saw a lot of success stories on YouTube and a lot of articles reading about a lot of success stories through them. And I believe it was at your birthday party a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. you and I had talked about it. Mm-hmm. And I went forward and I got a referral from my primary care manager and started my own trial with ketamine therapy. Nice. Well, I'm glad I could yeah. could help with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was what what did your um protocol look like once you met with the clinician sure you know usually with these sort of protocols there's always uh, a pre-drug session meeting sure. um you know you gotta you gotta build that relationship 
she has to, you know, she or he needs to understand what, what your objectives are, what sure. your intentions are, you know, what your traumas are, all these, these things, um, you know, that you would sort out through normal talk therapy. Sure. And so that's established prior always, um, it helps the facilitator guide the session better. Um, and then the drug sessions usually happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, talk about your process through that system. Sure. So I met with uh, the anesthesiologist, and I'd done a bunch of research in Colorado to find the right person for what I wanted to do. And I ended up going through a place in Denver. And okay. what we ended up doing was we met the first time, and he kind of took some patient information, and we looked at some different things and what would be the best course of treatment. And it was uh, decided at that point that a, a six-dose loading phase over four weeks would be the best, the best starting avenue of approach. And the first day I went there, we started the first dose. And after that first dose, it was like somebody rewound my clock 17 years. Hmm. Pick that apart a little bit. What do you mean? So the problem... So the I, first dose, was it a big dose? I don't remember what the dosage okay. was off okay. the top of my head. But um, first dose, this is the first ketamine experience first you've ketamine ever had. First ketamine experience I've ever had. It was... And then, Boom, you're in it? Yeah, it was, it was like my head was separated from my body, and I was able to look at things differently coming out of that experience. Okay. So in, in uh, Buddhism, we'd call that um, taking the observer's perspective. Right. So usually in our, in our mental activities throughout the day, you know, we have thoughts that come in, and we literally embed our observation of these thoughts as if we're engaging with them right, right. so we're we're in it right or right. whether it's stress or excitement or whatever we're in that um thought spiral um what the observer effect allows you to do is to accept that that's the normal state that the mind right. goes into and the mind jumps all over but that we can exert some control over our participation in that and we sort of remove ourselves from the equation right. and sort of take a step back from the activity of our mind and just allow it to happen but just watch it. We don't have to be a part of it, right? right? So that's what you mean by your head was separated from your body, right? right? Yeah, you're able to, to just see how your brain was working right. in regards to the trauma. Right. It's awesome. Right. And I was able I was able to look at the trauma in a different a different light. So, so it was it was yeah. like it was like it didn't affect me the same way. It was like I was looking at what happened and looking at it in a positive light versus a negative light and allowing myself to, to be depressed over those things. Mm. Like it happened for a reason. I'm here for a reason. Go forth and do great things. Sure. Do you think you had to force that positive light perspective on your experience or did the ketamine do that automatically for you? It was you? automatic. Okay. So you went into it wanting to reprocess your trauma right but the ketamine allowed you to take that positive perspective that you were unable to find on your own right wow that's incredible right so you were able to remove yourself and then see the same events happen right same outcomes happen right but you were able to see it um in a growth perspective so right. what what are some of the positive thoughts about these horrible traumas like i'm sure you remember a couple little flashes of Sure. Positivity. What were some of those things? Well, the biggest, it was, it was one thing I took away from it. It was all a teaching, a teaching perspective. Mm. So what, what happened to me taught me how to be better every time I went forward to do something else. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. And not just because it's, you know, from a, from a ketamine experience, right. but yeah, if we can, 
if we can approach life in general right. in those terms, like everything is a teaching moment. Right. Everything is an opportunity for learning, right. especially the challenging situations, especially right. traumas. You know, um, yeah. I don't know about you, but I believe that everything happens for a reason. And right. we may not know the reason. And the universe has no obligation to tell us what that reason is. Right. But we just have to have faith that it's it's working, it's magic, and you know we need to um, find those opportunities for growth and learning, right. instead of wallowing in it, right. right? So what were what did you what did you learn from it? Like what did you with this growth and learning mindset? Sure. It's just everything everything that happened to me from watching my buddy get shot in the face past happened for a reason and. I, I was only good at what I did because of those events. Because when those happened to me, I wanted to learn how to be better the next time that happened to me. Hmm. So after all those traumas and dealing with all the, the combat-related trauma, every event, I learned something from it. And I got better because of it. Mm-hmm. Is that how you approached challenges before this experience? Like, yeah, I've, in, always, I've always been that so, way. so that was partially ingrained in you. Right. Yeah. I mean, even back to lacrosse, when I, I kept getting the ball knocked out of my stick, I learned how to cradle, and I got better at that. Sure. So when you when you were faced with challenges, you want a desire to get better. Right. Yeah. And, so, yeah, I don't know if everybody has that. Right. Yeah. A lot of people just give up. Right. Um, okay, so six dose loading phase in the four, first four weeks. Right. What did that look like? So it was two the first week, two the second week, one the third, one the fourth. Okay. And they're all guided with a facilitator in right. their office, right? right? They, they had a, an RN that was either in there with with the meds or the actual anesthesiologist themselves. Okay. And did you do IV or IM? So first one was a 50cc IV bag, so 50 milliliters, and they, they inducted or introduced the medication into that IV bag, mm-hmm. and that was a little too much for me. Mm-hmm. So they ended up doing a, a pain pump. So they ended up squeezing it through a pain pump over the 40 minutes, and that, that dose was absolutely perfect. Okay. Nice. So you didn't try the intermuscular? No. Okay. No, that That's be, the only kind that I've that tried. That would have been way too much for me. <laughs> sure. Sure, sure. <laughs> Okay, so six six dose loading phase in the first four weeks, and then what was the protocol after that? So we never really got to that point because I had to go down and start retiring from Fort Carson, which was a huge process. Yeah, that was that was a was that like thirty six months or something? Uh, thirty months. Thirty months. Yeah, start to finish retirement process. Yeah. So for those of you who are out there worrying about your own retirement from civilian well this to is, civilian right, life, and this was kind of the worst case scenarios. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, Neil just spent three years trying to get out of his job. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, so after that last dose, the medications pretty much lasted 90 days. Okay. So that kind of gives me hope to go back and doing this again. Um, during that course, I was off of all of my medications but two. Wow. So the, the pills went down. So you got rid of seven meds. Yeah, and I've got I've got chronic pain issues from a hernia repair and one of the side effects from the ketamine that was positive was I didn't need my pain meds anymore either. It at all? Actually, at, at all. It was actually helping with my, my, my pain. So it helped your brain re, your reprocess pain too? Right. Wow. That's huge news for and I got, everyone I got, out I got there. to looking into that, and that's actually what they also use ketamine therapy for is chronic pain issues. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of places in Australia and in Europe that are doing it. So That's incredible. Yeah. I know so many people that I treat on a daily basis who take opiates every single day for right. pain. Right. And if you can take a, a dose or a series of doses over four weeks of ketamine and not have pain for up to 90 days without right. taking any pills, right. 
That's insane. And some of, some of the research that I looked into, too, some of the veterans for chronic pain and PTSD and behavioral health issues, they're actually making it nine months before their uh, follow-up dose is needed. Okay. So, That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard um, with the psilocybin treatments for PTSD, it's up to 18 months in between doses too so that's really good um okay so you had to discontinue your ketamine therapy after the first four weeks but you what were some of the benefits to your depression and um and your overall sure mental affect that's what i mean by rewinding 17 years so i was able to and i was doing it and i wasn't even noticing it so i was able to be in a restaurant and sit in the middle of the restaurant not have my back to a wall or worry who's around me Wow. I was able to sit through fireworks for the first time in five or six years. Um, just a lot of everyday things where my wife is typically worried and she's watching me and trying mm-hmm. to figure out if we need to leave or what's going on. It just didn't affect me the same way. Did you experience a genuine like lack of fear in those situations or were you still conscious of like, this is what I'm doing and I'm sitting in the middle of the restaurant was, on purpose? I was subconsciously doing it and I didn't even notice it. Wow. It just didn't affect me the same way and... So just a general sense of like ease and, yeah. and like this world is not as dangerous as no. I once thought it was. Right. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. So your plan is to go back and, and continue with the ketamine therapies right. now that you're fully retired? Right. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so you still are down to the two meds? No, the med- medication came back once the ketamine therapy wore off. Okay. So then there was more of a need to, to right. um, deal with right. the symptoms. Right. Okay. Well, that's awesome. Um, like I said, they only, um, like I've had, I've had a lot of uh, personal experience with, with this compound um, since high school, but it was more recreational back then. Right. I didn't really have any intention behind it. But um, even back then, you know, I'd have out-of-body experiences, and those are my first experiences of astral projection. Right where I would literally leave my body and go fly through the houses of my best friends right. um, and then the next day talk to them and report things that were going on in their house that I should never have known about right. because I was halfway across town right. um, that they were actually doing. Um, right. So those were my experiences early on, and it was more of a party or a rave drug. Um, but then later when I, when I recreated my relationship to psychedelics, um, after studying shamanism and seeing some of the, the historical benefits over thousands of years uh, for their uses, um, I started dabbling again with, with ketamine and found it to be, and still find it today to be, um, one of my top three th- sure. that I like to use um, just because of the depth that it allows you to go. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it really does take you to that ego death experience um, more consistently than some of the other psychedelics and that's that's part of why i like it but yeah i went out to the wholeness center here in fort collins um um, and met with dr shannon um, who's out there and he took me through uh i was just interested in in how the medical field does ketamine protocols and so he ran me through his protocol and we did um, an intramuscular session and you know it was it was beneficial but um i found the clinical setting right. to be sort of um, a barrier to to me being able to go as deep into the experience as I like. Um, I prefer to do it in a home based environment, um, surrounded by pillows and my dogs and stuff. Um, what did you find um, the cl- clinical setting to be like for you? So very very nice office. It was mm-hmm. just. 
good people, very nice office. Um, one of the other anesthesiologists that works for it, she was awesome. She would like to talk the whole time. And I mean, her and I talked about a lot of things. And I think I was maybe talking more in my mind. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and then because my wife said I definitely garbled. did not have that th that same conversation I thought I was having. Mm -hmm. But no, great people. Um, very very comfortable environment. Um, yeah, great great place. Yeah, I found that talking to be a little difficult too. Yeah, you know, yeah. part of the sessions is that afterwards you you can sit up and talk to your therapist or psychiatrist about what you experienced and help process it, but. You're right. Like my thoughts were, and my voice was clear in my head. Yeah. But what was coming out of my mouth because my tongue was still numb and my yeah. my face was not working the yeah. way I wanted it to. It just came out garbled and. One of the worst part is like I think I told you this. My arms and legs feel like they're tiny. Yeah, like you did like tell six me inches that. long. <laughs> <laughs> you did so tell I me felt, that. So I felt I felt a little weird, like mm -hmm. I was a T Rex talking mm -hmm. to people. So. So talk a little bit about the this disembodied experience, right? Because this is an experience that I think a lot of people fear sure. about a lot of things. So when people think about death, um, that's part of their fear is being disembodied, you know, being right. removed from their physical body and unable to use the senses. Um, and this is also people's barriers to um, trying psychedelics when they could be useful is, you know, I don't know if I'm going to go crazy. Am I going to lose my mind? Am I going to become, you know, am I going to leave my body? And, right. and um, I know for me that's become um, something very spiritual and something very positive when that happens. Sure. But talk about your experience because, uh, I don't know, have you had a, a disembodying experience before that? No, no, I was definitely the first one. And it was, it was just being able to look at the entire encompassing event versus being in it. So I wasn't, I wasn't in those situations anymore. Like I was, you know, the third party looking in and seeing what was actually truthfully happening. You were like a fly in the wall. Right. I wasn't, I was, I was able to look at it without blaming myself or, mm. you know, taking ownership for what happened for something I couldn't. I couldn't have, I couldn't have done. There mm -hmm. was outside factors that stopped me from doing my job. There was, you know, people that committed suicide in my life that I could have never seen it coming. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was a lot of things and being able to process it that way versus how I was looking at it before. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how human beings attach that gain, that guilt and shame and sure. blame to themselves sure. for these things, and I, it happens so often and in so many different contexts, where we feel like somebody else's outcomes right. is somehow our fault. Right. You know, and in some cases it is. You know, if you're a parent and you're responsible for your child, and maybe something happens because of neglect, then sure. But um, for the most part, other people's outcomes are in. in not in our control at all, right? Right. But we attach so much. Right. Why do you think we do that? Well, my, my population is, or the people I've worked with, it's, uh, it's survivor's guilt. It's, sure. Even if a person doesn't die, there's still a level of guilt. Right. Like it comes. should have been me. Or... Right. Right. Or could I have done more if I was there? Would I have seen something? I mean, it's, it's you know, fortune telling. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, what if. Right. right. All those what ifs that we can't go back and change. Right. Right. Oh, that's incredible. Well, and I, I'm a very small population of that clinic's patients. 
-hmm. I guess there's a very small percentage that actually have a response that quickly. So for anybody listening, it might not happen that quickly, mm -hmm. but over that loading phase, usually good things come out of it. So Okay, awesome. So if, it, if you try it once and it doesn't work, definitely give it a few more chances before you discontinue it yep. and work with that anesthesiologist. So. Yeah, yeah I've, worked, I've, I've noticed that too with most psychedelic-assisted um, therapies is that sometimes right. people's first encounter won't be this earth-shattering, right. mind-blowing growth. Everybody's um, different. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it, it takes, um, again, you know, like just like we have to build a relationship with the therapist, we have to build a relationship with the medicine too. Right. You know, our body has to acclimate to it and has to learn to be open to what it has to show us. Right. Um, so I find that to be another important aspect with any sort of medicine work like this. Um, well, you know, it's, it's similar to antidepressants, right? right. You've got to take antidepressants for two right. weeks before your body well, acclimates, your system, right? Yeah. Same thing with, with these psychedelic medicines. Right. Um, it only makes sense. So now you're retired, newly retired. Yep. What are your big plans for the rest of your life i mean how old are you you're only in your mid-30s 35 right? yeah 35 uh, fully retired yeah back to school for social work man nice that's yeah. what i'm hoping to go to yeah. back to school for yeah where at uh csu oh Ames, so nice yeah well if i get into the phd program um in this coming year i might be teaching some of your classes yeah, yeah. Okay. that would be interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah Nice. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. You're getting all A's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what else? School. Um, I know you've been uh, you've been riding bikes a lot, right? Yeah, with your I've, wife. I'm always trying to do something outdoors mm -hmm. to soak in that vitamin D. Mm -hmm. So. So what's the big what's the big picture now for you? What's the dream? How are you going to enjoy retirement? Slowing down. Slowing down. Slowing down. Where a lot enjoy. of people speed up in right. retirement. Allowing allowing everything to soak in and do something past this point so nice are you going to continue um to seek opportunities to to um, benefit others in in what in whatever you want to pursue yeah a big thing i want to do i don't know if i necessarily want to be a counselor but i want to i definitely want to do case management and i want to work with uh, corrections and veterans nice i think there's a huge divide in resources for both of those populations and having had a lot of friends incarcerated and a lot of friends as veterans i think i can do a lot of good there and hopefully help them find a better path forward so yeah we have had a lot of incarcerated friends huh yes we have i don't know what it is about the friend group that we chose to hang out with yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and a lot of our <laughs> friends from high school you and i ended up yeah you know being some of the lucky ones that yeah. got out of that when we yeah. did you know a lot of our friends have died Right. In those worlds, too. Um, yeah. Well, my hope for you is that in retirement, you find um, the time and the space, along with your wife, to to fill up your life. Right. Even if it's slow. Right. It's slow going, but to fill it up and, and make it as full and happy yeah, as she, possible. Yeah, she started a new job the same time I retired, so mm -hmm. it'll allow us to be around each other a little bit more, and I think that was kind of divine intervention, so... Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you staying involved with the veteran community now? I've been looking at some different things. Um, I've got some friends that do adaptive sports, and we've started helping with kind of going on bike rides with them. And it's short-lived to this point, but I would definitely like to move that forward. And I found a veterans organization that takes veterans 
and peers that are makes them peer mentors towards people with disabilities. Nice. So, so is this this program you're talking about like people with uh, amputate amputees? Amputations or paralyzed typically is what it looks like. So okay. again, adaptive sports. So that's what you meant by adaptive. Yeah. Okay. I really like that term, adaptive. Right. Rather than. Right. Um, you know, disabled sports or something. Yeah, and I've been I've special not been able to be as physical as I used to, so I got mm-hmm. broken off by uh, a couple of guys on hand cycles the other day. That was kind of opening. How did that happen? They just they they were better at hand cycling than I was with my legs. So <laughs> time to time to get back to it. I think was so. they giving you a hard time about that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's their jobs. I think so. <laughs> yeah, that's something I notice hanging around around you and and some of the other vets is. Your guys' sense of humor is um, very unique. Oh, yeah. You, you know, unique to the military. Well, maybe not to the military. Because I see it, too, in, in professional sports where people will razz each other on, right. on teams about their wives and stuff like that. But you guys have a special flavor because you're all on one team. Right. And you all realize that. Right. But you're different branches of the same team. And you need to bond with each other through... Humiliation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah love we definitely that. eat our own. So, mm-hmm. sure. And I noticed that with the female military population too. They, oh, yeah. they join right in it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. You know, I think um, bonding through through humor is is incredibly important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really cool. Um, so. What about jujitsu? You gonna come back in and try that? I have to have like four surgeries and then I will be back with you. Holy so, cow! What do you need surgery on? Uh, two abdominal, my ankle and my shoulder. From biking? No. So my ankle was a golf tournament, walking down a hill. You told me yeah, about that. Yeah, broke that. So no cool story there. Mm-hmm. Like not like extreme dr- golf. Yeah, drunken parkour or anything. Uh, two surgeries on my shoulder have not been successful, so they got to figure out a game plan going forward with that. What's going I, on in there? Um, my collarbone is broken and it's pushing down on my rotator cuff so they thought they cleared enough space but it doesn't look like they did so it's freezing and then uh abdominal surgeries is repairing a hernia repair that didn't go well so i see that a lot too botched surgeries these days yeah Yeah. there's a great new documentary on netflix Uh, i forget the name of it but it just came out a couple weeks ago about um botched surgeries and specifically um medical device implantation you watched it yeah isn't that crazy it is oh man there's so many issues oh that mesh well so that's that's what they've got to figure out so the anchor points are rubbing on the nerves Mm -hmm. and they've got to figure out a way to mitigate that Mm -hmm. so initially when i had the surgery set up it was supposed to be they would go in cut me open fold the muscle back over and fix the abdominal floor so it ended up being emergent and a strangulated hernia, and they ended up having to go in and use the mesh, and it was not a good time. So on a pain pump, the doc came in and asked me, or the different doctor came in and asked me if I wanted the hernia mesh, and I just apparently answered yes. So, While you're on the, yeah, you have no, yeah, that's that should be illegal. It should have been, yeah. yeah. Or you look in the notes because it was the same. Great. Or your <laughs> or your wife should have been able, should have been the one to. But make she was decision. asleep, I think. Okay. So, yeah. Or tired. It's She'd completely been inappropriate. For like two days. Yeah. So a couple of shoulder surgeries, abdominal and ankle surgery, yeah. and then you're going to come back and try it. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. How did you like it the, the one day you did come in? That was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We were trying to get, get uh, a program going for specifically for vets for free at our, at our uh, jujitsu gym where we'd have vets come in and, and um, me being a, you know, a clinical therapist and then 
having our coach there being a, a black belt in jiu-jitsu, we we're going to try and integrate the two and right. and help um, veterans with PTSD and specifically somatic issues, you know, touch and claustrophobia and things right. like that, overcome some of those through exposure, through a healthy avenue like jiu-jitsu. Right. Um, and it's being done in a couple other places across across the world, but... Um, it looks like we're we're coming to the end of our time, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to thank you again for for being on the podcast today. Yeah, man. Um, I feel like you have a, a wealth of experience to be able to share um, with our listeners. And if any of our listeners have any further questions, um, you know, send your questions to me, and I'll send them to Neil, and we'll see what we can do to to link you guys up with whatever resources you need. Um, again, we're sponsored by MindOps.com, so please check out our website, www.mind-ops.com. And as always, uh, keep your eye out for the good news out in our world. Um, thanks, Neil, yep. for coming. Hope to have you again soon. Sounds good, man. And, um, yeah, thanks for listening. Please like and share uh, if, you, if you like what you've heard, and let's get the word out. Let's help this, um, this podcast ripple out to as many people as possible. Thanks for listening.